before we got on my hands on, you had a theory about why black people don't listen to blues. Ready, set, go. Oh, my okay. God. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting theory. <laughs> and I could be completely blues. wrong. but uh, I, but, oh, no, I think you're right, and I'm going to get onto that when you're done. So when blues is first coming about, there was a separation of church and blues music, right? In black communities, church is obviously a huge thing, especially at that time. Then there was this other avenue called blues, which is coming from the fields and slave chants, and it was being put into like actual arrangements of music. Church people did not like blues music. It was the devil's music. You didn't do it. Like you didn't listen to it. And if you did, you weren't allowed back at the church, you know? Oh my God. So if you think about the dynamic of slave and slave owner, and not only utilizing your slaves for work, but also maybe as a form of entertainment. If you hear the music and you kind of, you, maybe you like it, yeah. and it's like, hey, you know, why don't you entertain me? Like, sing for your meal kind of shit. You know, it's mm -hmm. fucked up. That's what it was. Yeah. As time goes on, you hear the difference in, in the styles of music. Soul music and funk kind of like is this bridge between the two worlds. But you have soul and R&B, which is basically gospel music with secular lyrics. Blues kind of kept down the same train, but if you look at the crowds that have gone to blues shows over the years, it's always been predominantly white people. Yeah. Always been predominantly white people. And I think there's something to that, going back to the history of where blues comes from. That's not to say there's no black people that like blues. Blues got its start and its foundation off playing in these tiny black-only clubs. There was a need for it within the community, but I think that not only was it more available to a lot of white people, I think it was also funded by a lot of white people. And I think they knew how to market it in a way where they knew that it was gonna make money. Back then, you weren't marketing to black audiences, they didn't have the money, and they didn't have the population size either. So you marketed it a certain way. Whereas soul and R&B kind of stayed in their lane until like the Motown days and Barry Gordy was like, hey man, this is just music. This isn't like a white or black thing, this is just music. And marketed Motown music, which was all black artists for the most part but he marketed that in a way that was like this is just music for people and mm -hmm. once he did that that's like where the gap started to bridge between blues and soul and r&b and it became like funk that's wow. my take on it i don't know the exact history of all of it i could just be talking out of my ass but that's what my observation is huh. wow. i don't know the exact history that's either awesome. but you did say a lot of accurate things the blues and church separation that definitely is a thing i don't think that had an influence on the industry though that was just a religious thing yeah. every fundamental household has like one thing you can't watch or sure. do okay. that's just the cultural aspect of it but going back into the industry point mm -hmm. the only people that could afford to really go to shows were white people <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly and i remember before we even got on mic you were like yeah, a lot of black people don't even know about blues or rock. And the history of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. that, and that's true, because when I was growing up, the first um, black person I was aware of that played guitar was Lenny Kravitz. Wow, oh boy. <laughs> wow. Oh boy is the correct response. Wow. <laughs> this goes to my point, though, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the whole thing. That's wild. We all know now Chuck Berry, he was the first man to ever electrify guitar, but the way it got marketed, the only people that could afford any market in it were white people. Right, mm -hmm. and also blues musicians hated him. What he was playing to them was country music. It's like, this is white people music, because he wasn't playing blues. I mean, he, he had like this blues cadence to some of the stuff he did. All early rock and roll does have that kind of cadence. Yeah. But at that time, it was such a new thing. It was like, this sounds like country music. The way he's singing, it sounds like a white person. The way well, he's wasn't playing. Wasn't it just 12 bar blues in a major key? All it was. Yeah, right? okay. That's all it was. <laughs> but you have to understand that at that time, the, there's the, the history that made those two things obvious wasn't there. Right. You have blues that sounds like this. By the time Chuck Berry came around in the 50s, you had different styles. You had big city Chicago blues, right? And then you had like more Delta kind of blues. Robert Johnson, Lead Belly, and that. 
that kind of stuff. And the big city Chicago stuff was like Muddy Waters, a full band, electric, guitar player, like soloing over a band. Right. And the Delta stuff was just very, you know, like acoustic guitar, self-accompaniment, that kind of thing. That's the shit, man. It's amazing. I, love, love I mean, you should check Skip James out is one of my favorites. Yeah. He used this weird open D minor tuning and his voice is so haunting. So you're just like, Sounds this perfect. is a blues artist? Yeah. <laughs> so you had this separation of these different styles of blues music. And then you started getting like the West Coast up-tempo swing stuff where it was kind of like big band music, but it was scaled down a little bit and just very fast. Fast one, four, five progressions, maybe a couple of weird turnarounds. And then Chuck Berry comes around. It's like, what is this music? And it was like, well, I guess we're going to call it rock and roll. So the blues musicians didn't like him. I don't think he came from that world, honestly. I think Chuck Berry probably <coughs> came from more of a of a diverse background. I know that he definitely toured blues for a while, but he had to tour the Chitlin circuit, which is what, which is what all the blues musicians did back in the day. Let, was, let me say Chitlin circuit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always say Chitlin circuit. I think that people are allowed to say anything, but <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, well, I played in the blues scene. It was a very common term. Yeah. It was not expressed to me that's a racial oh, thing. Yeah. But, but they would come down to the south, and you hit all these little clubs <laughs> through Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North Florida. Yeah. I oh, played God. at one of the clubs called uh, the Bradford blues club oh you saw yeah you were saw, there yo you hooked up a really good date for me that night thank you oh, you want to tell them about that venue the yeah, first and the last it is so this venue is really cool it's in bradfordville which is just outside of tallahassee in the middle of nowhere right we get to this place i don't know where they're taking me we're driving to the woods and it's just like where the fuck are we nice. all of a sudden there's like this house looking kind of bar okay this is kind of cool and i get there and there's all these like plates in the wall that have all the blues musicians that have played. B.B. Wow. King is on there, Freddie King. What? You're talking like early career shit, like wow. no one knows who they are yeah, yet. the career bar scene. Wow. Yeah. That's... This was like a shack out in the woods that had a staging area out back oh, and yeah. a fucking yeah. fire pit. It was like fire Max Fish Camp. Oh my God. <laughs> without a lake in the woods. And without the rednecks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, it, was, it was real fucking chill, That's man. Super awesome. chill, like bro. you said, you didn't know where you were going. I was driving my date out there and she's like, oh my God, where are you taking me? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I didn't know either, but I gotta be cool about this shit. I'm just like, you'll see. Yeah. Which I know now you shouldn't yeah. Yes. Say on a right? first day. Yeah. That's, some real, <laughs> that's some real Ted Bundy shit. My blindfolds are too tight. <laughs> so, so are my cuffs. It's a small stage, very intimate. There's like maybe 50 person cap in there. The tables are set up where you're very close together and like candlelight. It's very dim and it's just an amazing place to play. I actually danced that night, I remember. Did you dance that yes. night? Yes. I danced that night. <laughs> For the record books. <laughs> it was very cool for somebody who's been influenced by blues so heavily. It was very cool to be in a place like that and to, to play in the same stage that a lot of these, oh, yeah. my idols have played on, you know? Yeah, cool. for fucking sure. And that was part of the circuit apparently i can't say that word <laughs> uh, let me get chitlin. to why there's a connotation behind yeah that. please please yeah. it was called the chitlin circuit because some musicians just refused to play it i'm too good to do the chitlin circuit sure uh -oh. and the chitlin circuit was mostly black musicians uh, of course. so yeah. well do you know the, the whole thing about chitlins and why it do became like a, a black thing do tell us is because it was just the intestines of the pig right they, it's slave food uh, whenever i go to a fucking brunch place or a breakfast place and i see a fucking eight dollar bowl of grits it yeah. makes me so oh fucking upset yeah. triggered yeah. <laughs> triggered oh, you like our artisanal grits your artisanal slave food not that i'm good um for those who are just listening right now and don't know you probably can't tell but jeff is black 
For those of you just tuning in. This is why he's so outraged by all this stuff. <laughs> yes, I know with my New Zealand accent, it was hard to tell at the beginning, but I am a black man. That Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Jeff is a beautiful black man with beautiful well, hair. I wish I could show it to you. I am Jeffrey <laughs> Allen Thornton. Wow, Allen. I am a black man from Orlando, Florida. Are you related to Big Mama Thornton? Thought so until I found out I was adopted a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, are they related to Big Mama Thornton? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And who is Big Mama Thornton? She was a person who originally did Hound Dog. Yeah. I don't think she wrote it, but her version's amazing, by the way. I mean, yeah. El- like the first version I ever heard, obviously, was Elvis because I grew up in a White House. But like, it wasn't until much later when I started playing like in blues bands that I realized the amount of stuff that was taken from black communities. Uh, and redone by white artists. Elvis was kind of known for that because he grew up in a black area. For me, I love Elvis Presley. I listened to him growing up. One of my biggest, earliest influences. When I played with Rock and Jake, uh, Maurice, the drummer, church guy, hated the fact that I liked Elvis. But if you know the history of Elvis, you know that he grew up in a black neighborhood and went to black churches. That was literally what he grew up listening to. Oh, you're right? saying Elvis had black friends, so that makes it okay? Uh, <laughs> Elvis had one black friend, probably. I'm friend. sorry, cut that's, right, that's, okay. that's, that's good, that's good. I think more of what I'm saying is that it's less about the color of your skin, it's more about just what you're influenced by, you know? Uh, yeah, no, I don't hate Elvis at all, but I do make sure people know that he was right. basically a cover artist. Yeah. Yeah, right. industry does that too. It's right. only by yeah. people's own willful ignorance that they don't know that. But how is it willful, willful ignorance. ignorance if you're never given... Because again, the reason I thought Lenny Kravitz was the first nigga to play guitar <laughs> was because after the Motown era, all the way up through the 90s, it was just all white. I'm sure there were some, there weren't many famous black guitarists from Jimmy the Hendrix. post-Motown era to the 90s. Yeah, not in the pop world, no. But and since that's where most of the money yeah, yeah. in entertainment is right. generated, well, depending on when you were born and depending on what history is available to you, yeah, most black people didn't. This isn't just me. A lot of black people my age find out later in life that rock and roll was a black invention. Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. But there were black guitar players that were big on a pop level, like Buddy Guy. They weren't in the spotlight. And this is pre-streaming. We didn't have... Right. Right. Oh, it was like, only if you were already fine. into music, then you knew about Buddy right. Guy. I'll grant you that it wasn't the norm. Blues musicians, these people were very famous at that time, arguably more famous then than they are now. And to yeah. take it back yeah. to another point yeah. you made earlier, a lot of contemporary black families are Baptist. Yes. They don't give a fuck about blues. Right, that's so, what I'm saying. I'm not blaming anybody for the disappearance, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, it, it disappeared. There was a major gap in time where it was very easy to forget that there were any black people doing rock. Sure. Absolutely. Kind of to your point, like, blues has never really been the mainstream kind of music. Not to say that those people weren't there to look up to, it's just that what's being exposed to you the most was, like, the Eddie Van Halens, Jimmy Page, and stuff like that at that time, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, right. you are correct. If you were white, you probably grew up knowing who Buddy Guy was. B.B. King, everybody knows B.B. King, but like Albert King, Freddie King. You've heard their name before. Maybe you don't know their catalog, but you've heard their name. It might not be the same thing within black communities. I mean, it's a class thing. A culture thing, really, I think, more than anything. Yeah, I guess, I guess that know, is more it, fair. It really culture. is more about the church and about the religion and the separation and like where your music comes from. Also, if you're the born you in the 90s underclass of black people and you're in those neighborhoods, you're only hearing fucking gangster rap. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so. Or R&B and like yeah. soul music. Right. If, if your parents like listen to like, you know, Smokey Robinson and shit like that, maybe, yeah. you know. Depending on the neighborhood, that shit really disappeared by the 80s, 90s. Especially because you had 
such younger parents. Right. Your parents weren't like 30 having you, not you specifically, but a lot of parents were like, you know, 18, 19, younger than that. Right. You know, so the music was literally the same generation. Yeah, by mm -hmm. that time, for sure. That's what I'm saying. There was a very you're narrow right. gap where all that information just kind of yeah. disappeared. Yeah, so, yeah that's well, true. You're saying that Buddy Guy was a household name. I literally brought that up last time we were here, and yeah. none of you knew who he was. Yeah, it's true. You know yeah. who Buddy Guy was? Yeah. See, I was the only one here, Anton, yeah. who had any idea. They were like, yeah, but Buddy Guy, I thought they were all trolling me and shit, yeah. bro. It's the craziest thing because most of the best blues artists uh, or guitar players in the world are black, but yet the entire fan base is white. That is interesting. Really I just want to articulate like, it's not black people's fault they didn't know that. Of course not. Okay. <laughs> so this is the fun that I get to have being more of a conservative on things. My viewpoint constantly gets so misrepresented. If I say something, it's like, so, so you're racist. It's like, right. so you it's like no, I, I wasn't doing that, that to you. No, no, I was no, preempting no, that. Right. But it's crazy to me that somebody could jump to that conclusion based off what I just said. I'm in no way downgrading the style of music. I'm no way downgrading the black communities. It's 100% a religious thing. It's a church thing. Yeah, that's what it is. And a, a it's secret. not a class thing. It's a church thing. It's church know? sucks. Fuck that. Sucks. <laughs> the reason I took it to Fuck a class thing is before the age of digital media, the more money you had, the more free time you had to go. Explore the libraries and shit. Sure, yeah. and that's an aspect of it too. For yeah, sure. I'm sure there are a lot of young teens that know who Buddy Guy is now, just because hipsters have been recirculating that shit yeah. on the internet. But. Taking away from the class point again, most people, even if they had the free time, weren't going out and researching bands. Music is a subculture of a subculture. If you were that interested in figuring out about music, you were already gonna do that regardless of the amount of time that you right. had. Rock and Jake was telling me, and obviously he's white, but he didn't grow up in the best financial scenario, but he put himself in situations where he worked at record stores, worked for radio stations, right, right. because he was so in love with music yeah. that he was able to explore the catalogs while That's he was there. It, yeah. It's not necessarily class. Look at Dr. Dre, right? I mean, Dr. Dre was obviously from one of the worst neighborhoods in the country, but the dude had an affinity for music and made it his point to do the research and find out where all this stuff was coming yeah, from. Yeah, but you can also have an affinity for music and simply too many real-world responsibilities to ever follow up on it. The reason most people don't follow their dreams or interests is because they have too many responsibilities. Yeah, I'm just saying mm -hmm. that's not the norm, though, is all I'm saying. I would say it's more of a norm than not. You think so? I would say more yeah. people don't get to follow their passions and interests than most. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah. I just mean sure. as far as doing research on music specifically. Yeah. And like, again, we're talking about post-Motown era to where streaming media became a thing. Right. When you had to go out and get it, I would definitely say class was more of a barrier. Probably, yeah. yeah. It definitely had more of an influence that, yeah. at that point, for sure. For sure. For sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, we're solving the world's problems here. <laughs> there you go. This is what this conversation in this table is about. Uh, I kind of forgot that I wanted to fight my plumber for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just wanted to fight me. Fantastic, dude. Nah, I, I love you, guy. <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. I gotta do some social real quick. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll be dead silent while Anton finishes his social media. Ten minutes of dead silence. <laughs> I gotta do Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's all. Anton's fault. Three. You have to do three separate instances. You can't just share them all on the same platform. So three that's what I'm doing. Things. Oh, that's good. It's true. I've been it's off true. of all it. social media since 2015, yeah. and now there are six other pictures of me online. Oh, <laughs> now seven. I was like Avon Barksdale in season one of The Wire. I was Ooh. a ghost, a mystery. No one knew who I was. I was off the grid. <laughs> kind of. That's awesome, man. Jake, have you seen my cousin Vinny? No. 
Oh, I awesome. own that movie. Thank you. VHS. Yeah. All right, we're gonna watch it after That's this. So it's a great sure. movie. Yay. I think cool. we're both gonna love it because yeah. it's a law movie. It's about a lawyer. It's a very good example of how law procedure goes. Very accurate. And that was a go-to for law professors for a while, no showing way. them the proper law procedure. What? Like It was a comedy, but they still showed you all the steps and process of the law. Interesting. Right. Like without, uh, there was drama in there, but the steps were legit. They didn't right. like right. finesse it at all. See, I think that's a thing on its own. That could be a whole separate podcast series where you, Travis, <laughs> me, and Anton or whatever break down all the movie Travis and I have been stuff, talking man. about it. We just have to find out a way to get them piped in because we go ham on our you fucking Telegram are, thread. You guys are wild with <laughs> how, so how in-depth your guys' knowledge is of storytelling. You and Travis have some weird understanding of storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's that's like a natural like, thing. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. It's just wild. Well, can't speak for him. I know for me, it's like, I treat everything kind of like a live performance, you know? And I break this rule sometimes. I try not to talk when I'm watching movies with people. I try to pay attention to all the details. And like, I went to Hamilton with my mom on Broadway and the entire time she's looking over at me to see my pop of a reaction and all that shit. But I'm looking at the lighting rig. I was still seeing the show. I was still getting all that, but... There's just so much more to lock on to right. when you know it's there. Yeah, and for sure. Honestly, uh, I was looking at the Hamilton light and I was like, yo, I could, I could do this shit. That's cool. You should do it. Yeah. If I'm ready to get yeah, a good right. op gig, either at a museum or a theater or a I mean, venue. It'd just be fun oh. to be a part of something creative like that. Yeah. You know? I'm tired of hotels. This shit's wild, <laughs> man. That fucking, that fucking yeah. corporate shit sucks, man. Yeah. But it does pay the bills, I will say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It does. Well, not right now, but. No. Yeah. <laughs> Flag football. All right. So. <laughs> no fear. <laughs> We're doing it. And I just want to preface this by saying that. Uh-oh. Looks like someone forgot to check their blind spots. Okay, boys. We'll revisit this segment on gender in the workplace when we have more women in the room. No one likes a sausage party. People conflate empathy with sympathy. Yes. Uh, I can easily understand most people's situations when they spell them out for me, but right. a lot of people get turned off by the fact that I'm not <laughs> incensed by it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm a fucking cold assassin, y'all. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be this way. I, I just can't help I, it. I've seen so much yeah, shit. So like, much. <laughs> I just process it, it goes out and. I have helpful advice, but it won't make you feel good. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, because it's my job to be like a technical logistician. I definitely need my lead at my property. She kind of smooths out all the clientele shit when I'm being overly technical, kind of setting the boundaries. She softens the blow of what I'm saying. Good. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. totally yeah. So can I ask when it comes down to your number two, in those work situations, would you be able to change that partnership? You're the person that can be able to uh, delegate all the client shit, and then she's the one that can take oh, care no. of the technical My stuff. journey has not made me a people person. Okay. <laughs> that, that's all there is okay. to it. No, that's understandable. Yeah. Though, it's totally understandable. <laughs> but the expectations of those works. You and, know. and let me clarify what I said. I'm not rude to people yeah. at my job. I don't call anybody outside of their name. I don't diminish people. It's just I'm not warm. It's business, I'm, though. 
Yeah, but also what businesses, and I'm curious about this because I'm going to challenge you a little bit. How much of your lack of ability to be a people person is because of you not putting yourself in the scenario where you need to be a people person. Well, define being a people person. So, for instance, I think Jake probably knows me the best out of everybody here. He's known me the longest. I think that when when I first came around, overall, like when we go to parties or whatever, I was very timid, yeah. especially when it came to yeah, women. You were not a people person. I was not a people person, <laughs> right? Yeah. And in the industry that I've decided to embark on, you have to be a people person. To the point where I was super insecure and couldn't talk to people to now where I'm literally on camera once a week talking to just a bunch of people right. that I don't even know. So how much of your ability, your lack of ability to talk to people and communicate effectively without being a dick, no offenses, right. I have the same problem, right? How much of that is you just accepting your disposition and not challenging yourself? And how much of that is you have challenged yourself and just decided that you can't do it? I've challenged myself and decided that the world is not ready for it. And I'll lay this out for you mm -hmm. now. And I don't play this card a lot. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Being a black man in America, all I can do is be confident in my beliefs and have every answer to defend them. Especially since I work in hotels, I have to be coldly professional because high-class white people Suck. don't like when I am overly confident in telling them the limitations mm. of their gear in the room. Yeah. That's why I need my number two to soften the blow. I'm with you on that. I don't think that that's a unique situation to being black, though. I don't think it's unique either. I think it just gets brought up unconsciously or yeah. consciously. I sure. think it yeah, triggers exactly. on people okay. more. A big part of my belief system is that the idea of black versus white or Latin or Asian in this society and the, the levels of disparity that exist. I'm not saying that there is none, right? I believe that there is. If you are white in this country, on a macro scale, you have an advantage, right? I believe that that disparity though, that gap is being a bit exacerbated. And I also believe that what happens on a macro scale doesn't necessarily translate to a micro scale, right? If you are white in Dade County and you don't speak Spanish, mm -hmm. you're at a serious disadvantage, yeah. right? You, like, you're, good luck finding a job. I've lost commission-based jobs. Same, I didn't, totally. yeah, yeah. Same here, same here. I wrote this song called Common Ground like a while back ago. And the whole idea, like the last verse is where I say like, no more beating while we're already held down and no more teaching that you're meant to be defeated. All we need is some common ground, right? That's more or less what I say. Perpetuating the notion that if you're black in this country, or if you're Latin in this country, or if you're Asian in this country, perpetuating the idea that you're at a disadvantage just because of that doesn't do anybody any good, number one. And the level of disparity isn't as great as what the media wants to make you believe it is. Right. I don't think I'm perpetuating myself to be at a disadvantage. It's just I've learned after having to do just a lot of extra social calculus that I'm not gonna risk my fucking job trying to be extra warm to people. Sure. I mean, I take this into every job and I've told people I'm here for the goal. I will make friends while I'm here, but I, I tell this to my bosses, I tell this to my subordinates. After a while, I'm gonna stop talking and go do the thing that we need to do. Yeah, like, totally. People see that as dickish. The alternative of that, if I am super social, depending on who's above me, they see people talking and depending on who you are, that can be social or that could be lazy. Right. And I'm not just going to take a risk on everybody's perceptions so it can make me a warmer person. Right. I'm just going to do what I got to do. I feel you. And then okay. when they have any beef, I got the fucking long list of 
You all know me. I prepare for everything because I got to. I don't want it to be that way, but it is. So This is a really good point that you made, and I 100% agree with you on this because this is that level of disparity that I'm talking about. The same thing goes for like police. There are racist cops. Let's just say there's probably more white police officers than there are black police officers. Yeah. Yeah, or, or Latin police officers, depending on what city you're in, I guess. So another uh, side piece of information that the racism coming from white people to black people or to white people to any other race in America specifically is not the same as racism coming from the other side to white people. And I'm not saying it's not the same in the sense where it's not racist. It is racist. There's a power dynamic that exists there. One is racist because we believe we're better than you. The other one is racist because we believe that you don't like us. Right? Uh, I'm sorry, I need to cut in here to set a very important distinction. This is something that I live by and I think that every conversation needs to adopt. Yeah. I distinguish between racism, which I think is a personal beef between ethnicity, and I distinguish between discrimination, which I think is a systemic beef mm. between ethnicity. Okay. Mm. I think if we fucking start yeah. every conversation with that distinction, it would be mm. so much better. When I call somebody a racist, if I ever do, I'm thinking about somebody running up to me and calling me like nigger for some reason, but... Mm. But it's easy to convince somebody that they're participating in a discriminatory system. Right. It's not easy to convince somebody they're a racist. I'm going to let you go ahead now. Yeah. So if we're talking about racism coming from one side versus the other, as far as like... I discount the power dynamics argument when people say that there's no such thing as racism against white people because of power dynamics. Yeah, that's not true. I, yeah, I discount that argument because, sure. like I said, racism is a personal beef. Right. So like, when I call you a crack-ass crackle, that's... <laughs> And you all have a vision of the person. That's a personal racism. Although we can argue a power structure here, too. I'll come back to that later. Right, but. Okay, but, um, where the power structure is in your favor, right? The point being that it's not that racism doesn't exist from one side. is that there is a difference in where the racism is coming from. One right. is supremacy. The other one is inferiority, right? If there are more white cops on a police force... And you as a black person or as a Latin person or as an Asian person, uh, you're out and about and you come in contact with law enforcement, chances are that you're going to come in contact with a white officer. Yeah. And there's probably some racist white officers just working in the force, right? Just because of the chances of running into a, a white officer and a population of them being racist, there is that disadvantage that you have. If I run into a black officer who's racist, which is probably very unlikely, then it doesn't necessarily have the same impact as if you run into a white officer who's racist. And, and your chances of running into a white officer that's racist are bigger than mine running into a black officer who is racist as well. To tie this back into the workplace discussion that we were originally having, yeah. Imagine the analogy you just made, yeah, but every right. officer is a supervisor or right. a manager that's or a high-powered client. That's why I said yeah. that. That's why I went to that analogy you just said. And I didn't think about it from that perspective. It lends credence to what you just said about the, the workplace. Yeah, and it's like, again, since I'm in hotels doing conferences for weapons tech companies, companies unveiling products and shit, like I've met, I've met, oh, really? I've met the huh? current <laughs> rendition of these aren't no tiny way. people that I'm in the room with. So professionalism is the only identity I have when I go to work. Right, it's not right. about being a warm person yeah, or, uh, sure mm -hmm. or everybody's no, friend. I understand. Unfortunately, that, that does work against me in like the kind of evolving work culture because a lot of jobs want you to be everybody's friend now. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of jobs want you to socialize during your downtime. 
they want to know more about your lives, I think, so they can control you if they know you're single and they know See, you got a lot of time. They're gonna fucking. That's your fucking. That that's your lens switching right there. All right. Like, you, don't, you don't have to think about it so negatively. Let me just give you a quick example. Sure. There are two other people that hold my rank in my company. We're all within three years of each other. One of them has two kids. One of them is married but has no kids. They're gonna get me all the time to fill that free space. Right. <laughs> now, I might have been at a advantage if I hadn't revealed more about my life. If you don't know who I'm living with, if you don't know who I'm dating. You know that guy has two, three kids. You know he can't do shit. You know this guy's married <laughs> and he has church commitments. He can't do shit. You're gonna get the single guy all the time. It's not conspiracy shit, bro. No, this is right. why they wanna yeah. know more about you. Yeah. So they, There's an aspect yeah. of that too, but I think that there's also an aspect of just building the work morale in general like when you have a rapport with your co-workers it makes everybody more productive because nobody hates going to work anymore yeah. Yeah. but there's an easy way to just have a quick interaction and say all right let's go about our day and do what we gotta do man like yeah that, that's how i am for sure like i'm not gonna spend time talking to these people like no a lot of people want to tell stories all yeah. shit bro there's a point where you're being counterproductive but then there's the social element you know if we're all going to get drinks after work or something well yeah that's where i make my work friends off oh. the clock yeah. i thought you were saying like you don't do anything like, fuck that, I'm here to work no, out. No, no, I'm talking cold. about yeah. when I'm on the when clock. Hot, when yeah, I'm yeah. In, like, yeah. they were here for the last conversation we had. I got promoted twice within the past year and a half. I lost some friends because I thought it was going to all be the same. Like, we were still going to be able to kick the shit during work hours. And I'm like, right. hey, like, we can still go to the bar and get fucked up. Like, right. I still smoke weed. It's cool. But <laughs> I got more responsibilities now, and I got to utilize you. You are my resources. I'm just not as available socially. I hate to say, but in today's work climate, that can be a negative against you. Yeah, mm. for sure. We can move on from it at this point, but this is something that you have to think about specifically because you are black. Is that what you're saying? It doesn't help. <laughs> but sure doesn't it's, help. it's multiple things, man. Nowadays, it's hard for me to distinguish my responsibilities as a man, as a black man, as just a responsible citizen of society. Yeah. My responsibility mostly that I've kind of gotten tired of is mitigating everybody's fear. Right. I don't know who's afraid of me because I'm a man. I don't know mm -hmm. who's afraid of me because I'm a black man. I don't know who's afraid of me because of some perceived power I have over them. And I just got to play it cool all the time. I feel that. So yeah. I get what you're saying. That yeah. makes sense. Right. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Dude. Yeah. That's probably the best way I've ever heard that explained. It's a very, very rational way of putting that difference into context, you know? Just for the sake of devil's advocate, I kinda want maybe just push back against that a little bit. So that is what your experience has been, being raised in a predominantly white or Latin. So what about the opposite of somebody growing up in a predominantly Latin or black neighborhood that was white? Do you believe that they have the same kind of responsibility that you would have to try and mitigate everybody's fear or suspicion of, their, of just them being around? Well, no, in a neighborhood where it's like one white boy and they're the person that's in fear. I think that kind of goes to what I'm saying. Like, like there's a macro view of how it works here and then there's a micro view of how it works and they don't always oh, yeah. translate to the same thing. Oh, trust so, me. I'm a, I'm a very context-specific guy. Like, yeah. I can I can make the distinction. I just want to be careful about generalizing the experience of a black person in America versus a white person in America because at the end of the day, it's about who's a dominant culture in any given society. And America being as diverse as it is from city to city or county to county, that changes. What you're talking about can also be in a different races shoes as well depending on what neighborhood they're in although I will say that you have that problem more often wherever you go because the dominant population as a whole in America is white 
right? Well, I did start it off as kind of a more black specific conversation, but everybody's a multi-hyphenate. And if you have multi-hyphenates that are all fear triggering, it doesn't matter where the fuck you go. All right, if I'm somewhere where it doesn't matter, I'm black, I'm still a man. Right. If I go somewhere where it doesn't matter, I'm a man, I'm still, you know, a little stocky, might fuck you up. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still talk my shit with a little bit of conviction, you know, and that really gets under people's skin, which I personally kind of revel in. But <laughs> I have the same problem, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to take into consideration the culture aspect, like you said. Like, yeah, technically black or like hip hop culture is the dominant culture overall, but it's also associated with black people typically being like gangster and you know well, like who dangerous and blah, blah, blah. people aren't pushing that narrative but, though okay. remember super predators from the 90s yeah we need to take care of these super predator what was that bitch's name hillary clinton <laughs> yeah. yeah, she labeled the propagators of hip hop culture as what? super predators. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What I'm saying, it doesn't matter where it came from. Though. The fact is that that is the image that people have of Black Americans, and not just here in America, but across the board, yeah. across the world. That association, I can see what you mean. I can never know myself how just being Black puts you in that image in people's minds. So in that respect, it's definitely harder. Yeah, I would agree with that, right? But I might push back on it as to what's perpetuating the culture and that idea. You know, it doesn't matter. It does matter. No, it does matter. I will say there's a responsibility at both ends. Exactly. Sure, sure. I will say that. Something that drives me crazy is when, typically when conservatives, uh, when old fucking white people in general, and they do this, they need to take responsibility within their own communities to fix a problem. The implication is that that's not already happening. If you go to black churches and like you see the community efforts being made, there's so much efforts being made to stop the perpetuation of that mentality right so that's very condescending there's the idea of bringing to light an aspect of a culture that most people don't know about, right? And that was something in the late 80s, early 90s that hip hop was doing. They may have been glorifying it. They definitely were glorifying it to an extent. Um, Real quick, I want to push back here. The origins of hip hop, and I think Jay-Z summed it up good in one of his lines. Hove did that, so hopefully you wouldn't have to go through that. At the beginning, it was people telling their stories so you wouldn't have to repeat their mistakes. Now, somewhere along the line, yes, there was a divergence where they started glorifying it. Because it became market. What soul, right? And the industry was like, Hey, talk about this, and we can make the argument of who's controlling the industry, right? I mean, old Jewish white people, basically, right? Yeah, (laughs) it's always the Jews being real, and that was probably more true of that era in the early 90s than it is now, right? I mean, like Dr. Dre, Jay Z, people like this now own their own labels and they're in charge of their marketing and their artist development, and they know what sells, and they have artists that they're pushing with the same narrative. There is a responsibility in the black community, I'd say hip-hop culture, to maybe not glorify all the bad shit that they have to deal with. Like, we know that it exists. Let's maybe try and not glorify that. Most deaf Talib Kweli, these conscious hip-hop artists do a really good job of shedding light on what's going on, but then also talk about, like, why it's fucked up. Yeah. You know, I might not agree with how they get to their conclusions, but their conclusions are great. And the way they word it is so paint such a picture. What they're doing is amazing. Why we're not rewarding that more than the mumble rap bullshit that's on the. I mean, oh. a song that's literally just says Oxy 
Cotton over and over again. Yeah. That's that's insanity. Blows that's my that's mind. insanity, yeah. right? Blows my so mind. there's definitely a narrative being pushed from the political side and old white people. It comes from really just a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening in these communities. And then there's the other side, which is like, yeah, we know what's going on, but it sells, so we don't give a fuck. We're going to keep pushing that narrative. Mm-hmm. And it all goes back to what we were talking about earlier with education, you know, that a lot of that can be fixed with the proper education, teaching people how to, like, be a nuclear family and raise your kids properly. And, you know, I mean, a lot of our problems would be solved if education was on point. My grandma always said, may you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. India for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at The Art of Blind Spotting. You can also visit theartofblindspotting.com. Send an email to Jeff at theartofblindspotting.com if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, complaints, hate mail, whatever. Remember, check your blind spot.